Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and on this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lara Platman, who is a photojournalist and author. Welcome to Rearview, Lara. I'd like to start off by asking, how do you describe your photography? Um, I'm a photographer, portrait photographer. I photograph cars, craftsmanship, endangered cities, people that have got trades and skills that are that are being taken away or um, they're diminishing because of technology and I like to photograph these people so we can keep them for prosperity um, but a lot of motoring photography a lot of motorsport and a lot of pit lane work well we will explore all that much later in a lot of detail I have many questions for you about all that uh, but I want to start like I normally do which is to go back into the myths of time and find out when you first got interested in cars and the motoring world do you know when that was? Well, I my dad always had interesting cars. He had a Citroen um, DS, which went up and down. My grandma had a Capri until she blew it up in Sainsbury's car park. And then my dad got her a Superstrada, Fiat Superstrada, which then came to me whilst I went to university. The, the natural choice of vehicle for the student. It was pretty fast. <laughs> but the um, speedometer, you know, the... Uh, the, the odometer went backwards so every time I came to see my parents I'd done less miles that's that's marvellous uh, Ferris Bueller would have been very jealous so we got rid of that car and then I had a Morris Minor as my first car really so I was always interested in cars that had a bit more character than a normal car I was given a Fiesta for London which I left somewhere <laughs> I think <laughs> I mean I, I, did, I dumped it properly but I think I left it somewhere in Deptford and I helped an ex build a MGB midget race car oh yes I don't know if he's raced it or not um and then I took my race license did a couple of races and haven't done any more but then some boyfriends had series one Land Rovers which led me to get a series two Land Rover so it started from my dad and my grandma I suppose and my dad dad my grandfather who I didn't know had some crazy cars as well he had a Robin Reliant and a and a hearse. Um, so. uh, yeah, of course. Perfect two-car garage. So um, that's the cars he had. They had. So it's gone back that far, I suppose. A bit more natural. I never got taken to race meetings. I never. Oh, my mum had um, a Triumph Herald that stopped in puddles. Okay. So it wasn't sort of a keen, interesting cars. It was just it naturally grew until I was working editorially for a country life magazine 20 years ago now because they sent me to the first ever good revival oh, right. graph, all the theater and all the characters and people and that's where i got my interest in cars really as an adult mm -hmm. okay so where did when did the interest in photography come in was that because of cars, or was the photography uh to do with people Oh. So photography was when I was a child. So my father okay. always took photographs, and our kitchen larder was our dark room at night in a larder. Oh, so so pro he was doing proper photography. It's not take a few snaps, take it down to Boots, have them processed. He wanted the whole experience. Oh yeah. So he had a theatrical dresswear hire business, and he made theatrical costumes, and so everything. Mm -hmm. And he made wedding dresses, or they had a team of couturiers that made wedding dresses and so he took the photographs for all of the items they were selling 
and made catalogues and cat show catwalk shows. And so he had a dark room, was always interested in taking photographs, and we we printed in the dark room. And then I went to school, did O level photography, and then I went to art foundation course, and then learned really how to print photographs. And um, photography just was became addiction, I suppose. Did you start practicing out in the theatre type? environments because of you know obviously your dad's connection to it so I went to fine art did a fine art degree, mm-hmm. majored in photography and welding and sound installation it was a postmodernist degree of course <laughs> right. can, can you so hang on whoa, whoa, whoa no can't gloss over that <laughs> how are those how were they connected or justified as being connected so it was an art fine art degree one segment was photography one second mm. was art, and I chose to do welding because why not? It was really good fun. And then one segment was sound installation because I nearly went to music college. Okay. I kept my music, I played the piano and saxophone, so I kept my music element up. I then mic'd up bits of metal into a quarry and made exhibitions and music out of metal in a quarry. It was a postmodern degree. And then my photographic element was part of Newport School of Photography. And so I was taught by photographers. You might know people like Martin Parr or um, Keith Arnett, David Hearn. There's a major retrospective at the moment. This is going on the moment of Don McCullen, and I assisted him when I left. I had some really good photographers teaching me. And then when I left my fine art degree, I went into doing assisting for theatre photographers and dance photographers, and then I set out on my own theatre and dance photographers. I've always wanted to know, what does a photographer's assistant do? Are they just general dog's body, or what What are you doing in that job? Remember photography you needed to, roll, to, to load film, and film was in either a 5 by 5 inches by 4 inches plate, or even a 10 mm-hmm. inches by 8 inches plate, or a 120 millimetre roll camera. So you would load film, you would sort out the lights, you would make the tea, you would iron all the shirts, you would iron the backdrop, paint the backdrops, run to the processing lab, Joe's basement or Metro, and sit there for two hours while they get processed with all the other assistants. And you would be working all night long, taking film backwards and forwards, um, processing it, and setting up the next day's studio. It would all be ready before the photographer got there. So that's what an assistant does and still does. Today they might be, instead of processing film, they might be sitting on the computer and editing pictures mm-hmm. and, and getting the pictures sent across from the computer to the camera to the computer to the camera, you know, and doing the lights as well and making tea. Do you think that's something that a photographer should process, they should go through so they fully understand... I'm trying to say it's it's a bit like an apprenticeship. They fully understand the whole process, the whole environment of everything, and what is trying to be achieved because they've gone in there at a very granular level of I've got to paint this because they want X to be behind, or I know I've got to go and get you know the, I am seeing the photographs after they've been printed, and I am I'm the first one to look at these before the photographer generally, so I can I can pick out things and then they listen to what they say, and that will help educate me in getting my eye and stuff like that there is that i think apprenticeships on any level on any skill on any craft are really is really important of course you can go out and just 
go and do it, but you're going to make mistakes. Why not make mistakes under the guidance of somebody who knows what they're talking about? And it's an extended education rather than getting paid to make a mistake. And it's your job on the line. They'll never <laughs> employ you again. So, but it's true. You get to see the pictures and you get to help print and learn about the different paper, the chemicals, or the digital cameras, or the digital formats, or the file size, or what needs to be choreographed or composed for the magazine or the advertising campaign. So it's, it's vital, really. And it's lovely mm-hmm. being part of a team, because as a photographer, you're really isolated. And if you're part of a team, it's great fun. It's much more fun than, than working on your own sometimes. But yeah, I think apprenticeships on any level are really important. Thanks for that, because I, I keep I've I've heard of the the role, but I've never understood what they were asked to do. I mean, I had an assistant. I sometimes have an assistant still. Um, I I have a pool of people that I call, but I used to have an assistant on a twice weekly basis, who not only came and helped me with shoots, but would edit photographs or uh, again, run to the run to the lab and get photographs, and because also you do test shots. You don't just you didn't just do one roll. You did a test roll mm-hmm. digitally. Now you look at the back of the camera. So the role of assistants has changed a lot. They have to be a lot more digitally savvy. And I wish I would have a digital assistant a lot more often. Uh, yeah, I wish I would have one more often. It's just jobs I do. I end up editing myself, so and I shoot a lot more in the camera, and I don't really need to edit that much anyway. Mm, okay. What is it that drew you into photography? You just go into the dark room, and you stick this bit of paper in this liquid, and a minute and a half later, this image comes out of the liquid. Give it a shake, put it into the stop, give it a shake, stick it to the fix for five minutes, and then wash it, and magic happens. And you're capturing one twenty-fifth of a second of life. You're, it could be in the air. You could be capturing somebody dancing in the air mid-motion or racing around a corner or in a pit lane, capturing them jumping on top of an Audi hybrid, cleaning the windscreen off or pumping in petrol or pushing tyres. You get them twenty-fifth of a second. And that's a piece of time that no one else knows about because I've always been trying to find images capture experiences that no one else can really see so i love um photographing something that is in the night time when people are asleep or the making of a cloth that didn't sound sinister at all when people are asleep, <laughs> oh my god I, that? I need to explain that a bit more Lisa, i did a project through the night at night time and then i went off to venice a city I go to every year for two weeks to work and this time I went to the carnival and I did my normal gig at the carnival but I decided to photograph the fish market between 6am and 9pm 9am 6am to Mm 9am when most of the tourists and the public weren't there it was the real restaurateurs and the fish market guys setting up while everyone else was sleeping and I'm just about to embark on a project about dairy farming and lambing at the moment before dawn okay well it's a good time of year i kind of took to this idea of nighttime work 
because of a lens that I've got. It's called a Noctilux, Noctilux, mm -hmm. nighttime light. And it's an F1, which means the aperture, the iris, is extremely wide and lets in a lot of light. And the glass is incredible. And it's made in 1974, 1976, the long hot summer. It's a magnificent lens which really works at night time you just need a candle and it the light comes in and it just made me realize i can photograph at night time if you've got a special thing like that then why not explore it who inspired you when you were younger then as a photographer or um mm. so as a when i was younger before i went to college i suppose i was looking at fashion photography because my dad had lots of magazines and so i knew about David Bailey, Richard Avedon, and the like, Cecil Beaton. But then as I got older and went to college and learned more about documentary, Don McCullum and Mary Ellen Mark, um, but then also the Bloomsbury set, who weren't necessarily photographers, but they inspired me because they set up these, and Madame Yvonne from the 1920s, she set up these women in, in most preposterous mythological creatures all these it girls you know and these aristocracy ladies she set them up in feathers and fairies and and i loved all that shenanigans because it was completely untrue and unreal and then yet yeah, you get these wonderful like elliot erwick don mccullen henry cartier bresson who are real documentary this is real life bill brandt this is real life kind of photography and so I've always battled between am I art photographer or am I documentary reportage photographer? And I, to this day, I, I question it every day I go out. Am I setting something up or am I telling, or am I telling the truth? Does that depend on your mood, do you think, to a certain degree, the, which, which one you explore more? Or do you do it on a project-by-project project basis and go, well, actually, this project I think would be perfect as reportage, whereas this one would be superb as not <laughs> yeah first of all when you started to ask that question i was thinking yeah i might be a little bit mad but then when i <laughs> i never that's not what i was asking it sounded like that <laughs> then i think you're absolutely right it is completely project by project basis and luckily people ask me to to work for them now i still phone up and get asked for jobs all the time for new clients um but a lot of people commission me so the books I've been commissioned for, Harris Tweed, I needed it to be real and tell the truth. Again, this through the night story and uh, the morning light story, definitely real and exactly how the people, because I want to show how wonderful these real people are, how we expect. Yeah, there, there was no, no magic, was no extra magic was required. No, because these people At are this point, amazing. because it's, because this is stunning this is magical yeah they're so amazing these people who get up at four in the morning to give us fish on the dinner or they all the crew are working through the night to get this car finished you know a car could come into the carriage for two hours and be worked on for two hours and yet it could come third in the race or it could come second in the race because who knows what's going to happen to the other cars by law of averages yeah. but then i do some work in the theater and i completely dress it up, make it fantastical, get lots of costumes and cloth and paint backdrops. I've just bought some new Hessian and canvas backdrops, which I can't wait to do something with. I don't know what. 
but I'm going to be painting on them or something. And I've still got loads of backdrops from an old theatre company that, that gave me. They're like 26 foot by 50 foot wide. And I've got them stored in a garage. Um, it should fit in your studio, no problem. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Just unroll and fill them. They'll be fine. <laughs> so I do have two sides. Um, but currently, I think I'm a lot more reportage and documentary, mainly because that's what's happening at the moment. Maybe there's so much in the be documented as truth and to be shared as it's got to be saved. There's a lot to be said about having the truth at the moment. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And I think as a role of, as a photographer, it's really important to acknowledge the world that you live in. I think photographers and artists have a different aspect on the world than a scientist and a, uh, an economic, you know, an economist. I think a photographer mm. has a much more, obviously a visual approach to something and can see it from a completely different angle than somebody else. Well, I think it's what you said. You, the, it's, it, uh, artists have the opportunity to capture a snapshot in time. Snapshot. Uh, I mean, as snapshot. a snapshot of, of time. time. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Of course, you don't take a snap. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not me with my iPhone. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but having a snapshot of time. And, I mean, you look at the historical paintings that we still discuss and they're talked about and they're used as to help illustrate how people were living at a certain time and what they were doing. Uh, <laughs> even though that's a... Can it be argued that's a bit of a stylized example of what was going on? But we can still draw out examples. You know, they were using these sort of tools or this sort of crockery they wore this these clothes I mean, and this was you could see this is how the hierarchy is in society and that sort of I thing mean, we are social documentarians and there there is a fashion uh, fashion for taking for painting a certain style at a certain time is a fashion for taking a certain photograph at a certain time and i think at the moment real i think there's also well whilst this factual photography is going on i think there's a lot of you know because of instagram and what i think there's a lot of um fake photography going on as well so um there's can you explain that sorry I'm... um so uh set up shots that aren't that are trying to stylize that aren't real that are just so people are going oh look i've just been caught by chance in this pool yeah. with you know with the full makeup on nice and stuff. everything yeah and, and it's, it's yeah completely false and that's the new art yeah but that is that is a that is a <laughs> That is capturing reality of the falseness and, <laughs> of so much of society right now. Yeah, so so that is a fashion that's going on at the moment. It's a it's a zeitgeist of something that's happening at the moment. Um, and and again, um, when I go to historic race meetings, one of them, such as Goodwood Revival, is completely false. You know, it's theatre. Yeah. It's theatre dressed up to the nines, and it's glorious. We'll pretend we're back in the nineteen forties and fifties. Is that your biggest stage that you photograph on? Um, is it the biggest stage? Yeah, it is. Because the whole thing's a theatre. Yeah. The whole thing's a, a, a show. It's a it's make-believe. It is a big stage. You're absolutely right. Um, but I also think Le Mans and Nürburgring 24 Hours is an enormous stage because that's like eight, eight, you know, it's, how many miles is that? Ah, uh, but they're not, unless there's historics. Unless you're there for the historics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I still think all of... Um, I think pit lane work is a theatre. 
because you get the garage, the empty garage, which is the stage, then the crew come along, who are the crew, and then the drivers come along, who are the actors. Then you get the hire guys come along, who are the sound technicians, you know, the, uh, and then you get the makeup artists, who are the petrol guys. Um, <laughs> and I really, and you get all the uh, race engineers, who are the directors. And then suddenly they're in there for three seconds and they've, they've buggered off again out of the garage and the show's over. You've got to wait another eight minutes, 20 or two hours or something for the, you know, eight minutes for the cast to come around or two, two hours for the cast to come in again. So how do you set yourself up for such a, for when that happens? So you, right, so you, you're, it's two in the morning, you found a garage that you've got a good position on. That's not, you, that, no, that's not how it happens. I'll, no? I'll, I'll set it up. So. Go on then. It's two in the morning and you've been following the race or a couple of the cars for a few hours. You know what time they're coming in. They Are they every two hours, every hour and a half, driver change, flash and dash? Are they going to be coming in for their wheels or just the drivers or the windscreen or have they got a problem? And you watch the problem. So you catch a few of the garages. You kind of understand, have a relationship with a few of the garages. And it might have been you caught someone's eye, you caught a driver's eye, you caught a technician's eye, or you know them from before. So, or you're commissioned by them as well, you know. So that, that's, that's always, Even better. <laughs> that's always a handy, handy option. So say you're walking, you're strolling the pit lane, you know, like you're strolling like a girl on the street, on the pit lane. and you, you find out they're coming in in 20 minutes. So you prepare yourself. You practice the light you practice who's doing what you see the tires are they warming up so if the tires are warming up you know it's going to be a tire change you see a driver new driver's getting his helmet on it's going to be a driver change so it's going to be a little bit longer if you've got a little bit longer to step in front of the car without being run over and then you get your spot you plan your spot you find out where the lights are above you you get your aperture and your exposure and your shutter speed and everything correct get it all right so you you set that up before they're there, so you you don't you're not wasting wasting time on getting things prepared. Yeah, because they, yeah. they come okay. in and after three seconds they're gone. So you have to have had that shot, otherwise you're bugged. Also, you can't look down at your camera if you're if you're seen looking down at your camera. There's camera. There's there's CCTV everywhere. If you're seen looking down at your camera, which is called chimping, you are called in to the headmaster and told to not go in the pit lane again because looking down at your camera you're not paying attention okay yeah so you've got to get out of the pit lane to look down at your camera to see if you're happy with anything if you you know if you do that i mean i don't bother looking down at my camera until well i don't really look down at my camera i don't think i've ever really looked down at my camera i don't see what the shots are taken i don't need to look at the back of the camera pretend it's film and and you've missed it you've Mm -hmm. missed it you can't go, oh, I've missed it. What's... It's like a driver saying, oh, I, I made a mistake on that corner. What's the point? Just get the next one right. Go to the next corner, get okay. it right. So don't um, look at the camera and go, oh, that was great. Yeah. And then you waste you the next shot. The next shots are going to be better than the one you took the minute ago. So you set everything up and then get out. Get in and get out. And that's that's how you do it. And then you think, right, well, that was this time. I'm going to wait two hours and it's all going to happen again. And it's also relay, you know, other cars are coming in, or there could be a yeah, flag, yeah, yeah. and uh, you see a car that's had a bit of a problem, and you just watch it and check if it's going to come in again, have some work done. So that's how you set that sort of scene up. 
So you're looking for the drama and you're you're looking to capture that. Yeah. Whatever that drama is. Could be anything. Could be guys jumping yeah. on the bonnet, pulling off screens, could be petrol filling up, could be problems, could be drivers and all the crew sleeping. I mean, that's an amazing photograph when everyone's snoozing in the garage overnight and you just you're not you know no way on earth do you want to disturb them mm. but you don't want to steal a shot from them you don't want to steal their moment so you have to be very careful about how you do steal that photograph you don't want to yeah. intrude into their peace and quiet well i noticed with the with the um through the night photographs that are on your site that you do have people in them a lot even though you're photographing in motorsport the people side of things seems to be quite important. Is that because you want to show the relationship between the people and the what's going on, or is it just you don't think about it and that just ha- that just happens? Um, I think it might be because I'm interested in the theatre, as we've said, and people, and it just so happens that cars, or it just so happens that motorsport events. The more I've been looking at my photography, I'm really passionate about different subjects, cars, craftsmanship, dancing. I'm living in the countryside now, so I'm really getting into what the farming community is up to. And I think the racing is part of the story. I have, I'm, someone said I was a car photographer and I was thinking, well, I, I photograph cars and I'm, Really, really, really bloody love them. And I love racing, you know, motorsport and endurance. I really love endurance motorsport and rallies. That's my favourite thing. But I think it's because of the endurance of it, because of the human element that can anything can happen. Anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And we are challenging ourselves as a photographer. You've got to challenge yourself to stay up all night and not flag. And the drivers and the crew are challenging themselves to be the best they possibly can be because the car manufacturers want them to be the best the car can be, which is why endurance racing started, wasn't it? You know, to mm. test how the car can be. So there are people probably, yeah, maybe maybe my title should be portrait photographer. I, I, I don't know. I think I'm just prefer that enjoy as many facets of life. Mm. It just it just struck me that the, the the people are important in, for you. It appears in the work that you do, whatever it is that they're involved with, and it it I think um, what I've taken from your from the work I've I've looked at yours is that uh, I get to really see see them at these unguarded moments because the nighttime people are particularly unguarded because they can't see anything else but sort of what's around them immediately so you don't know what's out there so you it's not like you're pretending to do you know you're not pretending to be something you're not there's daytime you could say oh my god there's a big crowd out there i'm not going to do what i would you know i won't pick my nose because they'll all see me type thing you know we act in a, a more unguarded manner i think i like to show people at their most vulnerable and not in a nasty way not in a way of they've been a um offended or offended in Mm. some way but I like to show people who are really intensely doing the thing they're doing who are who are also passionate about the thing they're doing so the crew in the in the through the night story you know all the drivers 
and also the race or the audience, the race goes at Nurburg 24 hours. They are just mm. passionate as the as the teams and as the drivers and the crew. They get there, they put chairs up before anyone else. They tie the chairs to the fences so no one else can get there. You know, they, they sit at the, and they get there two weeks before the race starts, the Nurburg 24 hours. Two weeks before the race starts, they get there and they set up the forest and they have villages of baths and, and pubs and cafes and they live in these tree houses. There is it's a mega, mega event for them uh, to be at the Nurburg 24 hours. And and again, Le Mans is really special for everybody and Spa, all these and Monte Carlo Rally, everything's special. All the spectators, all of the drivers, the crew, the engineers, it's huge, it's a huge unity of, of uh, community. It's a big family. And um, you're absorbed in this whole world of whatever it is, but you're you know, you're brought along with it. And it's it's the same with the fish market. I got there um, as a tourist and asked the head honcho if I could take photographs. And he said, But why? We're we're just working. And I said, and he said, why don't you come back in the afternoon? And I said, that's when the public are there. I, I want to see you at your, at your time. I want to see you working. And after a few days, they welcomed me in. They said, uh, buongiorno, signorina. You know, they, they welcomed me in. And I showed them the pictures on the back of the camera every few days. And they couldn't believe I was taking photographs of feet or just hands. And sometimes I got their face in. It wasn't. It wasn't, and I took a few portraits as well, but it was them at work, and they realised I was serious at documenting them at their most, it, 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 it's a, they don't get paid a lot of money, these fishermen, you know, it's it's a passion for them, and yeah. um, I, and, and the weavers that I photographed up in Paris, they're now getting a good, decent wage, but they didn't for years, and many of them haven't been on the island, they, they live on Harris and haven't been off, and they're passionate about it. It's it's a way of life. It's a way of life. That's what I like to show. I think a way of life. How's your work changed over time? Patience. I've got more patient with everything, and I've learned to see the uh, wait for the other side. So, you know, in Zen they say there's twelve things. You can't always see the twelfth thing. You can always see ten, always maybe eleven, but you can never see the twelfth because it's always around the corner. Or hiding behind the tent, and I've learned to just sit and wait and be there. So you get ready, you get your camera ready, and just wait. You rest yourself, you rest your soul, and don't get exhausted before the actual events happened. And you just calm and wait and be patient. And I think that's how my work's changed because now I'm. I don't need to take five shots. I can just take two shots or one shot and I've got it, I think. Has that come also with the confidence in your ability? Mm. Over time, you've seen what you can produce. You know you're comfortable that you know what you're going to produce or be what you're after in that moment. So therefore, you're not having to worry about and I'm worries perhaps not the right word, but concentrate on, oh, hang on, I've got to have this element here all sorted, which is the technical side of things. Then I've got to concentrate on waiting till the right moment where it where it's right for me to take the photograph. 
and you know you see what i mean do you see what i mean that there's lots of elements you're having to concentrate on whereas perhaps as you get older and more experienced and well, there is that thing of obviously when you get older and you've been doing your craft for a long time you get more experience that's that's an obvious one you hopefully you are getting better and better but i also hope i'm not ever complacent about the shop i hope i'm always pushing myself and challenging myself mm-hmm. to make photograph but yes of course i think that i'm going to know well i know that the the dri- when the driver changes happen i know when the fisherman happen because i've grown up in in a life where and i know how long it takes to weave a bolt of cloth and how long it takes to harvest the fields or because i've looked at the world and looked at life and said right well this is a season a season takes this long um but i think i i hope i would never be complacent i hope that when i do go to a new place that i uh, well first of all i also got you know i was trained in composing a photograph so about my thirds and the zonal you know the tones the zonal areas and i know it was in my education i know facts of how to take uh, construct how to the rudiments of photography mm-hmm. and i know my equipment so those two things are automatic with experience as well and then i think the complacency mustn't ever ever stop you've always got to just keep your eyes open to new facets that come in front of them did you have to train yourself to see or have you always had a good eye um well i don't know i think if you like something you like doing something i was going to say it comes easier but that's that's not necessarily true um i enjoy it may be less painful because you enjoy the thing not necessarily easier <laughs> i don't know if i i mean i i have a certain eye i think everybody has an individual eye and I, I teach photography now and mm-hmm. I'm teaching the facts, the rudiments of how to construct the photograph and how to utilise the camera. And what comes out of my camera and of my students' camera and of the students standing next to them, telling them exactly the same thing, showing them to use the camera in exactly the same way of exactly the same kind of object or scenario, the picture comes out completely differently. So is that an eye? Is that understanding? Is that perception? I don't know. That's the magic of photography in the sense that it's independent, it's individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few photographers that photograph street photography. They could be standing on the same street. One waits for the 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 dog to cock its leg on a lamppost. The other one waits for a couple to kiss quickly on the cheek before they leave each other but they're both happening on the street at the same time those two things are happening at exactly the same time the dog is underneath their feet poking its leg because the couple are kissing and pecking their cheek before they go say goodbye and two the two people take the same photograph but completely differently one is bent down photographing the dog and the other one is catching the embrace they're there at exactly the same time and that's to do with an eye. Is that people's bias as well? Do you what think it, what they what they want? Because it, I think probably the better way for me to ask this question: When you take a shot, are you doing it for someone else? Or are you doing it for you? Ooh, um, so 
I'm usually commissioned most of the time, Mm -hmm. except my, uh, so some of the photographs on the Through the Night project were commissioned and some were personal and all of the Venice fish market was personal, meaning no one, no, but that, that's not what I'm asking. no one asked me to take it. So, okay. so yeah, yeah. the ones that no one asked me to take, I'm taking them because I'm curious and it's for me. And the ones that someone asked me to take, by now, so not this summer just gone, but the summer before, I went to a, in, an endurance race meeting and the client said, Lara, go do your stuff. That was the commission. (laughs) And I said, how many do you need? And they said, we need 25, roughly. Go do your stuff. Come back. Oh, can you text us every couple of hours to check you're alive? (laughs) Due to care and all that. Yeah, it was was an Uber ring. And it was, you know, I was in the middle of the Adenauer Forest. These Germans. So they wanted me to text just to check that I was cool. You know, so I texted everyone out and then said, I'm alive. And they went, okay, we're asleep. Please stop texting. <laughs> so, well, you know, I work at night. Um, so, so luckily now, some commissioners say, do what you do. Go and do it. And, and also, when I went to the Venice Fish Market, I announced to a couple of, you know, a, ma- a magazine, black and white magazine, and said, I'm going to the Venice Fish Market. Do you want a story? And they went, yeah. So, and I'm doing another story in may for somebody i said i'm going here do you want a story and they went yeah so that's the perfect mission really when they don't say we need this this and this and this they just say go on fuck her off come back come back with the pictures we know roughly what we're going to get and that's what we want yeah and they and they also well, that must be quite flattering on a personal level, professional level. It is level. really nice. It's the, best, it's the best sort of mission going, really, because also they know that I'm going to try and challenge myself and do something different. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're making the same thing every time. I don't. I hope I'm not. I hope I'm progressing. I hope I'm developing and changing my style and depending on what cameras I'm using. And I'm getting some new cameras in a couple of weeks. And again, I'm going to change my attitude again because it's going to be a different one's going to be a very very silent camera I mean super 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 silent which means I can really sneak up on people <laughs> and they won't know <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell a younger you photography wise um, try and think ahead a little bit more I haven't planned anything really don't worry and try and think ahead there's two conflicting things to say there, but it will all work, work, work out in the, in the mix because you trust yourself and your camera. You've got your camera in your hand. You'll be laughing it. That's what I tell my youngest. Right. You touched on it before Instagram, and I don't want to go into fakeness or staged stuff, but what what's your feelings on the likes of Instagram and the fact that there are now so many photographs out there. I'm not talking quality. I'm not talking quality yet. Let's hang fire on that one for a moment. Orphans, orphans. No, no, I know. But but just there are, you look at some, 
some photographs on or some accounts on Instagram just seemed like this tidal wave of stuff and it's hard to make sense. And then you look at some others that are not professional photographers, but people who clearly love the ability to go and take a photograph and have somewhere to show that off. So I have, I have a couple of thoughts about Instagram. First of all, if you're not having to pay to store your photographs somewhere, you are the product. You are being yep. used and abused, whoever puts their picture onto Instagram. So I always look at Instagram and social media and Twitter and everything like that. I, I use them all. I look at it as if you're going into a pub every night, getting absolutely slaughtered and hammered and drunk, wasting all your life, coming home going, oh, yeah, but I've got some contact. And then the next day you have a silent hangover because you're going, oh, I really need to go back and do some more drinking. It, it, it basically, it's an addiction. So for the people who haven't got a portfolio or website and they want to take pictures because these phones have got cameras on them and they're really good phones now, great, stick some pictures up, do it, have a, have a laugh. Don't waste time doing it. And for, for real photographers, think if you're going to make photographs, isn't that your living? Isn't that how you're supposed to pay your rent, your mortgage and pay your gas bill? So if you're going to put your photographs on Instagram, you've got to make money out of it. You have to make money out of it. You have to use the system because Instagram is free. Therefore, you are the product you're being used. So you need to turn it around and make it work for you. That's what I think. Me personally on Instagram, I've got two. Dif I've got three different Instagram accounts. I've got one which is my personal diary, because I used to do Polaroids every day, shooting with a Hasselblad camera. I used to take a Polaroid, and I've got them in sketchbooks, and I print them out every couple of years if I've been doing Polaroids. The Instagrams, I print them out as well and put them into the scrapbooks as well. And it's locked. It's a locked account, and I think there's about 20 people or 30 people who are on it who happen to be my friends who I've had coffee with or pizzas with or something. And I've got the photo feature account because I was told to. I'm a photographer. You've got to have a photo feature account. And I thought, well, I've got to get on with this bandwagon. But actually, I've got a photo feature account and I will put pictures up and I do them in little series and I lead them back to my website. As I said, you've got to make it work for you. You have to, but I wouldn't put real, and I would put my watermark on them. I was going to say, I, do, I don't follow lots and lots of photographers but the ones that i do tend to use it as a shop window perfect yeah, exactly. there there are a small selection of photographs to show the style the type of thing they do maybe something they've done recently and just go this is what you like if you want more here's the link to my that website is... which is you know this is where you come if you want proper stuff please everybody and they're obviously all watermarked and stuff that's like that. how i treat photo um instagram as well then i've got another account which is i'm building a house and I'm just putting um, bits and pieces I see on there um, as a scrapbook again. So I don't want to put it onto my personal scrapbook. The living daylights out of my friends. So I'm just using it as a scrapbook. So, yeah, it's a shop window. But, and I can't talk about all the other people that do it in another way because I don't give a damn. I just 
dated as flying pigs. So you don't go on there to consume or to look at? No, no, I'm nodding. Stuff. I'm nodding. No, you're not. You're not interested at all in that. If someone tells me about a photographer, I'll go and have a look at it. But I am looking at. Um, I like to go to uh, exhibitions and galleries. I'm going to the Don McCullen next week. I'm going somewhere else. I want to go to see these. Why the hell do I want to see a photograph that isn't even a photograph because it's not printed on a phone? I mean, why? Oh, that's a big statement. And so a photograph is not a photograph unless it's been printed. Well, that's a fact. A graph okay. is a piece of paper. Yeah, it's a photograph. It's an image if it's on a phone. It's a, it's a photo okay. image if it's on a phone. Um, I don't want to waste my time looking at fodder. There's enough fodder everywhere um and then people say but there's so many good photographers on instagram well if there are i'd like to see their website i'd like to i'd like to hear about them in the news why aren't they on having exhibitions why aren't they having real exhibitions i see them in the real flesh but i can't and, and then some people say but i get so much work from instagram that's brilliant because you're using it as a shop window that's how you're meant to do it and there's all these influencers they can what they're fancy i don't know anything about that it's the same it's the same as things like um hello magazine and okay magazine i'm just not interested in that waste of time there's enough waste of time in life this is a bit too voyeuristic yeah i mean yeah it's ridiculous i don't want to see other people's oh, it's not worth it. it's not my none of my business <laughs> to see what they do. <laughs> so you just you said they're a bit in passing but you say that you prefer to go to exhibitions and galleries. It's a different experience. Why is it's, that? It's an experience. Art and photography and sound and music. And it's ephemeral. It's like it's all encompassing. You've got to go there. You see it with your own physical eyes. See how it's been printed. Has it been printed by the actual artist or a professional printer? Has the uh, concerts the same? You go there and you just list something live. You look at it live in the flesh. And you're with other people who are there. Again, it's part of this um, community, this gathering of people who have actually made the, the efforts to go and appreciate something that someone has created, something for nothing, that they've made something that's so important. They, they think is important enough to put on a wall. And if they think it's important enough to put on a wall, it's your duty to go and say, yeah, well, I like it, or no, I don't like it. Do you think, oh, well, I think, I think I know the answer to this, but someone who's serious about their photography and wants to do it professionally should have their own exhibition as quickly as possible? Do you think that's something? Or at what stage in, photo in, in your career, in a career, sorry, not yours, a career, would you suggest to an aspiring photographer to think about a Exhibition. Well, your degree show is going to be, and that's most important and frightening, the nerve-wracking thing you'll ever do in your life. To this day, my degree show was the most frightening thing, really. So what, what happens in one of those? Excuse my ignorance, but... You, you think that the world is going to end if you do, don't do it right. You think the world is going <laughs> to, you know, you've paid all this money, someone has, someone's paid all this money to go to college, um, and you, you want to get a, a good qualification. And you, you 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 stay up all night printing and printing and and you think it's you 
she you've done isn't good enough. So you do another one and you do it again. You look at it and you go, oh, that's not good enough. And you do it again. You're never good enough. And it suddenly stresses you out. And by the time it's over, it's over. So I was very lucky to have my first exhibition summer of my TV show at the Royal um, Photographic Society in Bath. I was part of the Bright Young Things um, exhibition. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Right and things exhibition that was pretty amazing, the Royal Photographic Society. And um and then every year since nineteen ninety-one I've had an exhibition. So do you select or let's go back to the original. So for your final uh your your degree one, are you given mm-hmm. a this is you picking out and saying, these are the ones that I want to exhibit to the world to say I am I am it, good depends, it depends what course you're doing. I was doing that fine art, postmodern, mm-hmm. and I made a zoetrope. A zoetrope is a set of photographs that go around in a circle and are inside this. It's like a, a lampshade, and imagine you're looking at a photograph on the inside, opposite side of the lampshade, and there's little slits, and they go round and round really oh, fast. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. origins of cinema. Well, I made a zoetrope. But actually, it wasn't inside of a lampshade. It was on the inside of a huge, big studio wall. So you walk around, you are the zoetrope inside, and you're the one turning around. I made an installation piece because it was a postmodern degree. And um, and I got a nice qualification. And I went on to show that work in in Bath. You kind of choose the the, the like the best I suppose and you do a project that you think is going to be your degree show project and then the exhibitions you've done since then are they all just what you feel is the best from the last 12 months or do you pick a theme or does it change year on year so that degree show work lived on so for a few years I exhibited in different places then I moved to New York for a bit and I had exhibitions in New York of my work of New York. Craig, you're talking about if you want to watch people, <laughs> what a place to go. <laughs> then I roller skated across America. Of course. 4,800 miles for a charity called the Rainbow Roll for the End of AIDS. And we opened up the Gay Olympics in New York in 1994. Yeah, 1994. So I skated from Texas to New York. One hour a day. I was, I was the photographer. So I, it was a relay team. So I did the hour relay when everyone was having lunch. I roller skated on quad skates, quad boots, and photographed that. And that was an exhibition that went on for quite a while. Um, when I came back, moved to London, moved into a photographic studio, which I shared with five other photographers. And we had exhibitions we set up all the time because Shoreditch was full of artists, empty studios. So we set up, studio um, exhibitions and then I started doing long-term projects my through the night project took about four or five years to create and then the photo the set of photographs I did in Venice are now going to be part of a series I think maybe called whilst you're sleeping whilst you were sleeping or something like that that's the working title so I'm going to be doing farmers and lambing and milkmen so it's a long-term project about our society, I suppose. Mm. I think it's up to the photographer to be creative and not just get told what to do the whole time. Otherwise, it becomes a job that 
it's not personal. Well, are you truly stretching yourself in the fullest sense if you aren't doing personal work? Exactly. I I think you need to keep challenging yourself. You need to keep making trying things and making yourself go on in these endurance sprints. When I, I when I was working in the Hebrides, I slept in a tent for seven months, so in the snow as well. So, yeah, you have to challenge yourself. There's something else uh, I wanted to ask you, and uh, I know that you do. You actually uh, you teach people. You do British Motor Transport. British Motor Museum. Yes, that's it. Thank you. You teach there to help people with their car photography and things like that. But without revealing all the secrets, because, of course, we want people to attend these and enjoy your fine company whilst learning. But have you got, say, two tips or two things that people commonly do that they could do better? So the first thing which everyone can do with their phone or with their cameras, um, when you're taking a photograph of a car, bend your knees. Don't think that your height is the correct height because it is the incorrect height or it might be the correct height if you're short enough but if you're six foot two seven foot one five foot five you're the wrong height leonardo fiorenti the designer of the um, ferrari f40 he said the most optimum height to photograph the most beautiful part of the car is a foot and a half above the bonnet or the, the horse the, you know the prancing horse or a crest Mm -hmm. or the name badge a foot and a half above that means you've got to bend your knees therefore bend your knees another thing I think is really important about pictures of cars is look at what is behind you not what is in front of you but what is behind you because the car is really really shiny therefore it's really really reflective so if you're if you're wearing bright orange trousers, you're going to be in the picture. If you're in a car park, the car behind you is going to be in the picture as well. So if that car behind you is in the picture, can you ask it to move or can you cover it up with a jacket or just think about what's behind you? There's two tips. I'm not giving any more because you can come on a course. Well, absolutely. They can pay you money. They can pay everyone can pay you lots of money to get better. I do private tuition as well on a day on an hourly basis or daily basis, and um, I'm currently doing private tuition on a daily basis for companies who use the website for sales. They are people who are not photographers; they are salesmen, and they've got to sell stuff on the internet now. I mean, they. Mm. And then they, the cameras they buy, they go online. They go, oh, that's a good oh, price match. Oh, bundle. I'll have that. And they don't know what it is. They go, oh, mirrorless. That's new. I'll have that. And they don't realize that to really what piece of glass in their camera. And they don't bend their knees. And they're trying to sell something without the slightest bit of knowledge. And when they, when anyone goes to somewhere and they take photographs of their family, of their wife or their husband, they're standing there and their feet get cut off. <laughs> uh, bend your knees, the feet won't get cut off then. Uh, you are a an ambassador for Leica, aren't I you? I am indeed, Leica cameras. What What is an ambassador for Leica cameras then? <laughs> what, what, do you, what does that mean? Um, so 
I use Leica cameras. I am lucky enough to try out all different sorts of Leica cameras. And whenever I go somewhere, I'm all using and showing how brilliant it is. My Noctilux lens shoots at night time. I don't know any other lens, any other manufacturer that makes an F1 lens. I just don't know any other. Oh, there's Nikon used to, but I didn't make one anymore. But it's an exquisite lens and it's a rangefinder camera. The glass is so well engineered. Um, I could go on and on about how brilliant the camera is. What does it mean? It means I get to play with some of the most amazing camera equipment, which is the best sweet shop a photographer could ever ask for. That's what it means. And I, I get to meet some exquisite photographers who have seen the world and who've got something to say, not necessarily with their mouth, but with their eye. And when you see the work of Kim Ut, who photographed the Napalm Girl, remember that photograph? Yep. Photographs such as that or Elliot Earl with his humorous dogs. There's so many amazing photographers that use Nick. They use like I just had that in my brain about them. They use like a cameras, and they use like a cameras that you see their work, and it's a another community. You there's um any exhibition that's put on by Leica will be exquisite. There'll be such a definition, sort of capturing the essence of the purity and the essence and the moment, the perfection of the moment. How did you? come to find that Leica cameras really worked for you or with you? By mistake. So in 2008, all of us film photographers that were working for the Telegraph and the magazine, all got the sack, all of us, all in one go, we just got the sack. And digital cameras came in and the magazine editors said, oh, you, you over there sitting at the desk doing copywriting, you can take a photograph for us. It's a digital camera, go and do it. So all of us professional photographers got the sack and then they got all these people working in the magazines to go and take photographs. We had to wheedle our way back in. Um, and a lot of the really wealthy photographers or amateur photographers were putting or selling their film cameras because digital was this new thing, you know, go get a digital camera. So pawn shop window, you know, a thrift shop window, not a pawn shop window, but a pawn shop window. There was a whole... Yes, yes. <laughs> There was a whole, well, what you said earlier about me, there was a whole uh, Leica kit in the window, in the billing and bag, two M60s, which is a film camera, and a bundle of lenses. And it was for sale for, for not much money. I mean, a lot of money, but not much money. It was for sale for £1,000. And for me, that was a lot of money. But I traveled And on the Friday, when the ticket was up, I went in. And bought the kit. And and the processing lab, my processing lab, they could process and scan the photographs the next day or a few days after. So I could still give in digital pictures, but I'll be shooting on negative. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And a few of us did that. A few of us started to do process to scan, which we're all doing to this day as well. We love film, so we're shooting process to scan, which means you get a, a scan of your contact sheet. And then you can choose the one or two okay. pictures that you want to print. And then you scan them and send them in. It's a bit of a process, but you get this negative and you get an amazing picture. So it was a rangefinder camera. I'd never used that before. And a rangefinder means it's a way of focusing. It's a, a vertical 
it's a horizontal way of focusing, not a vertical way of focusing. Two lines come in at the sides, up and down, rather okay. than down, you know, one line in the middle horizontally, and you focus on top and bottom. You focus across across the lens. And the shutter was different. And there's all sorts of things different about it. And the glass was different, and the sound was different, and the, the weight of the camera was different. And and I started using it and just fell in love with photography again because I'd just recently chucked my other Nikon lens in the Thames River by Tilbury Docks because I couldn't ever bear to use that digital camera ever, ever again. Because it was horrible. The yellow wasn't yellow. The green wasn't green. The, it was pixelated. It was rubbish. It was just absolutely horrendous. And I thought I'd lost my profession. I thought I'd lost my career and profession. So I took up a journalism degree, diploma, did a national certificate of journalism started using the Leica and then I got involved with Leica and started using digital Leica as well so it was by accident thank god <laughs> there's something else that you do is that you are a committee member of the Guild of Motion Writers that's correct I am it? indeed yeah I'm the I think I might be the only woman now or maybe yeah it's a kind of a hidden little job uh, it's not a job but it's a um, we just um, arrange things <laughs> and um, make sure that the live <laughs> we make sure we make sure the um, the livelihoods of journalists, mostly journalists, are looked after. Making sure there's some discounts and membership offers. Making sure they've got legal advice and there's a benevolent fund. So if you fall sick, you can count on the guild to help you out a bit. And there's events like driving days and annual dinners and things and awards. And the awards are open to members and members. It's our 75th, I think. Or is it 85th? It's our anniversary this year. <laughs> so we're going to have a few events going on. And and our off, main office is at the Royal Automobile Club in Pall Mall. So that's really nice. We have our committee meetings there. Oh, well, it's a hard it's a hard task for someone. Um, I mean, I, I, I thought... When I went into it, I would do a lot more for women in the motoring industry. But being freelance, and I just finished restoring my car in the last couple of years. I've been restoring the Series 2 Land Rover, 1964 Land Rover. Um, and being freelance and doing the car, I thought I would have more time to do a lot more on the committee. But I haven't really. I do endeavour. Um, but I think my presence there might... I think at the committee meetings, my presence is just a loud opinion, you know, open opinion as well. Talking of uh, women in the motoring industry and thinking in photography terms, maybe I'm not looking in the right places, but there's not an awful lot of female photographers in the sort of car motoring world, is there? Or am, well, I, there... am I being just blind? Well, there are less. There is a fact there are less, but there are some lovely women photographing. I, 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 because I restored this car as well, and I didn't meet any other women restorer, car restorers. Uh, and when I mm -hmm. see women mechanics, I'm so happy. It's a world that there's not a lot of women in because of the school gates. You, you go to the school gates, the mums at the school gates take their girls pony riding or ballet or tap dancing and the boys go go-karting or football or mm -hmm. and, and then you you know one or the two of the girls that do go go-karting 
they suddenly get to 16 and they, they find boys or, or um, they, they don't get yeah. fast enough or they're not fast enough because they haven't practiced enough or peer pressure. But if they become engineers, they might do mechanical engineering, which is great. Or photography. I wonder if the women photographers in the world are what's happened with their own life. I, I was brought up with theatre, so everything I do is all about the theatrical element of life. Maybe some mm-hmm. women have been brought up, say, in poverty or in absolute wealth, and that would dictate their choice of telling their story and surrounded by cars and motorbikes. And they might be photographing cars and motorbikes. So I think mm-hmm. it really is to do with your upbringing, not for better or worse. I don't mean one is better than the other mm-hmm. because a lot of the best photographers have had such a you know they came from a state council estates or came out of poverty to get them out they used a camera to get them out of the surroundings so i think any surround any upbringing can be come to some great photography mm. but yeah there's less women in the industry it's changing but they in the 20s which this might bring me back to my um, play that i've been writing radio drama that i've about the Melbourne group. In the 20s, after the First World War, when all the, all the men didn't come back, a lot of the houses, the stately homes, had all these cars. So the women just raced and drove cars and flew planes because they could, and no one said they couldn't do it. And there were these fast women from the 20s making rallies. They were called the Wayward Women, and they just rallied all over the world. And the play I'm writing is about um, the Honourable Mrs. Mildred Bruce, who won the Monte Carlo Rally in 1927. She was a wing walker. She was one of the first women, first British people, not a woman, first British person to help perfect the fuel in the air. Plane to plane, refueling in the air. It just so happens she's a woman. She also put the first air hostess in the air called Daphne. She thought she wanted to make some money out of her uh, passengers. She was a wing walker. And um, she was a great, she, she, she bought a fold-up plane and flew solo around the world, well, by the way. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> she just did it. Today, let alone then. She just did it. <laughs> and, she, and she made a recording. She did an audio recording in the air. The, the first podcaster. <laughs> Mrs Mildred Bruce was the first podcaster. <laughs> That's epic. <laughs> to encourage more women, and I'm not trying to fix any of society's problems here or anything like that and 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 i but are there things that we can do to encourage more women into the motoring world let alone photography is or well i think there's no um necessity for encouraging more women into into photography generally because there's equal amounts of men and women in photography i just know so many women so many published women so many you know so okay. i don't find there's any um need to say oh my god women aren't taking photographs because there's millions of us <laughs> i i with regards to photographing motoring it's personal choice i think what that i think it's not about photographing the motor industry i think it's about women in the motor industry and there's a new w series has had such mixed reviews about why it's existing and because i think it's fantastic that everyone's got an opinion before anything's happened yeah i mean i <laughs> I, um, I i myself have got two opposing opinions clearly opposing opinions one is 
oh my god this is brilliant to kick start some a generation into the motoring into kickstart a load of girls load of women who are fast but they haven't had the opportunity because of mm-hmm. um funding everyone needs funding there's no difference between men and women but to kickstart these women into their series to say right get this going this is brilliant and that's brilliant what i'm frightened of is that it segregates women we've fought for years and years and years to be included into every single world you know to not be excluded and this is completely kicking this in the face however i think it's crucial and critical that we get a load of women on the front pages of the industry news they look jamie chadwick she just won again this weekend um mm-hmm. and um and then we've got um on the popular media on top gear there's the stig is a stigette you know Abby Abby Eaton. Eaton. so um and then there's loads of women i've i've got so many different women in my head i don't want to just mention one or two and there's a whole list the whole list of current girls out there i say girls because i don't think if you're under 30 you're still a girl <laughs> you're always a girl <laughs> But I think it's, it's incredible. I think it's important and incredible to get all these women out there in, in one flush. So, right, there's millions of girls. You can see they're, they're doing it. And then find their race times. Find out how fast they actually are. Because we've not seen that really at all. Because they've not had no. the chance. And here they are on the, the normal racetracks. Nürburgring, Spa, Le Mans, all these different series. They're going to be shadowing as a support race. We're going to get their race time in an in an uh, a moderately equal car or the car of the like. Get their race time, and we'll see if they're who's fast or not fast. Yeah. And then we'll see these young boys who's fast or not fast. And then the mm-hmm. sponsors and the team owners can actually pick. They can pick, can't they? That's what they do. They can make an informed choice. They then. can pick their fastest driver who they could be watching for a couple of years to say, all right, I've seen you now for a couple of years. I'm going to have you. Oh, you're a boy mm. or oh, you're a girl. And it doesn't matter if you're a girl or a boy. And there's not been that chance ever, really. And- no, because I thought it was interesting that Formula E recently at uh, in the Saudi Arabia uh, Grand Prix, the following day was a test day and that if the Formula E team used a woman test driver that gave them an extra seat so they could test two cars. And that was done in Saudi Arabia. Because they've just women can drive in Saudi Arabia. Yes. So it's yes. marketing, which is great. It's a good boy. It's yes. Cool, which is great. And Formula E is great anyway. And they're going to do yeah. Formula E Extreme now, aren't they? They want to do off-roading. Um, yeah. So that's going to be an interesting thing as well. Well, the I, the iPay series start. Uh, I think starts this weekend in um, in Mexico. So, so I think with all these new formulas, no one's saying, no one's said with Formula E, oh, it should be included in the fuel cars. No, it's a it's a separate entity. You need to find out hmm. which mechanic, which engineers, which car companies use. Cars, and this is what racing is about. Racing is about, it's always been about race on Sunday, buy on Monday. Yep. It's the same with the driver. You've 
one on Sunday, I'll buy you for another two seasons on the Monday. And if the girls can't, if the girls haven't had the exposure on a Sunday, they can't get bought on the Monday. That sounds really bad as well. My God, the things I keep saying. It's all right. We're, we're with you in this conversation this time. <laughs> you haven't just randomly said that. It's okay. I mean, I mean, it's a really fabulous thrust, sort of, to get all the girls out there, get them racing, find out who's fast, who's not fast, and then. So then, we've now got this plethora of girls in the in the mix. Hopefully, hopefully, this is what I'm worried about. Hopefully, the, the, the sponsors are now going to say, "Right, I'm going to have a girl in my team." Now they've got two boys and a girl. Or the two girls and a boy, who knows? And then the school gates. Others go, oh my God, that girl, she was so fast. Did you see her? And the little girl goes, what mm. girl? And they go, look, she was racing. Oh, how can I do that? Let's go go-karting. Okay. Wow. You've now suddenly got a little girl at the school gate saying to their mum, can we go go-karting? Boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not that I have any right to be, but I'm as conf- I'm conflicted in the same way that I am with the auto car women in industry awards they do annually. I think they've done it for a couple of years now, where they talk about uh, people who are in the um, who are in the manufacturing side of things. It, I think, on the one hand, it's brilliant that there is a set of awards there that celebrate how involved women are in the car industry in this country at the various different aspects. On the other hand. I stand. I sit there and I go, isn't it a bit sad that we need to do a separate one? And I get conflicted between the two. I mean, I obviously err more on the side of it's brilliant that there's these awards and people people can spot. You cannot help but notice it when that when that comes around. Autocar shouts that from the rooftops. SMMT shouts that, and that is great to see. Well, the board of directors, the D, you know, the um, they also have board of women. Um, people like the Pink Shoe Club and all the women club, all the, the the women in Westminster, they have awards as well. I'm conflicted with that as well. I wish there wasn't awards for women. What's the difference between having an award for women in the board of directors or the um, motoring industry to Miss World? What's the difference? I mean, there's a lot of difference. One's got bikini on and one's got talent. <laughs> Maybe Miss World's got talent. I'm just, just demeaning anybody, but... Um, yeah, I don't know if why. Yeah, it's all to do with equal pay, isn't it? And I, I don't know. Mm. You see, I've always had equal pay as a woman. I've set my rate. If they don't want to pay me, I don't yeah. work. Um, when I worked when I worked for the BBC, um, there was this whole hoo ha about BBC rates. I got a rate that I chose as a photographer, not as a woman photographer but as a photographer the rate I get commissioned mm. at is as a photographer not as a woman photographer or a man photographer um being a woman's got nothing to do with my uh being a photographer's got nothing to do with my sex so mm. I I can't I don't really have any answers to those awards whereas the W series I think it's brilliant and if it works it won't need to continue that's that's what I think Yes, if if it is successful, it will be a few years and then it'll disappear because people will skip it and go straight into normal into the rest of the series that are and about that, whichever series they want to explore first or, or get into. Whatever that's it is. what I think is the plan for that. That's what I think is the plan from what I've heard. 
I, I get the feeling on that uh, that that is absolutely the case. Is this is a short term thing, and we want to make ourselves redundant. Yeah, it's a complete. You know, uh, the people that are are doing it are are named people: Christian Horner, David Coulthard. They don't want to be caught up in a series forever and ever. I think they're doing it to just get this thrust of women into the inject these women into the system, get them seen. Get some get some yeah. idols out there. Get some pinups. Get some people, women at the school gate, the school gate children can say, "I want to be like that woman. I want to be like that woman." Because they haven't got that. Absolutely. No. Um, Absolutely. And for, for me, I I looked at Lee Miller as a woman photographer, and Madame Yvonne, and Dame Laura Knight, a painter. I looked at those people as as Influences, so it's important. Yes. Need role models is slightly abused, but it's that sort of thing. It's to to see examples that people have done things, or women have done things, or men have done things for a man and a boy, for a boy to do things, or yeah, from somebody from your community. You know, God, they. You know, if you if you, and also when someone from I always think about when those, you know, when you do those X Factor things and the voice, and they've come from a little village in the middle of Timbuktu or Tipperary or whatever. Yeah. The, the next child in that village is going to get is it? Absolutely. Right, you've touched on it briefly. Yeah, what? Big Red. <laughs> oh, my car. So, go on, tell us the story behind finding Big Red and then deciding to restore Big Red. I moved to the countryside and wanted to buy a Land Rover. My ex-boyfriend had a Series 1, and I wanted to have a Series 1, but they were too expensive at the time. They are now. And it also, a Series 1 was a bit too inconvenient and hard to drive and square. Um, <laughs> so I decided to get a Series 2 because they were much rounder and had a bit more signal mesh with one more gear. So I went onto Twitter. And asked anyone, did anyone have a Series 2 for sale? And there was one person selling a Series 2 called Big Red, which was nearly red or red. And sent me lots of... Red in places. Red in most, red in most places. <laughs> and mould, what I thought was mould in other places. They sent me loads of pictures and I fell in love immediately. I went... Um, at night in the rain to see it my car which we all know is the perfect time and the perfect conditions to view a car that you're thinking of purchasing yeah why not so I went and bought it straight away because I fell in love with the car <laughs> but didn't start it didn't start <laughs> actually wasn't red it was completely burnt and had no idea if it was going to run or not so I got my with the Guild of Motoring Writers, you get free AA membership. And then with free AA membership, with AA membership, you can get a discount on towing facilities, by the way. That's a good reason to join the Guild of Motoring Writers. Um, so I used my AA facility to tow the car back, put all the liquids in that you needed to put in, noticed how some just came straight out. <laughs> <laughs> Managed to start the car up after about three hours. And drove around to Adrian Wynn, who is a Land Rover 
and historic vehicle specialist and said, can you get this car working so I can go do this remote And I want to know how to do it as well because I'm going to have this car and I need to know how to service it at least if because I don't think it's going to work all the time. So I need to know, and I don't want to wait for AA all the time, so I need to know how to at least maintain it. So I was his apprentice, which is a very good thing to be. And um, over two weeks, we got the car MOT ready, and she worked like a dream, absolutely amazing. So for a year and a half, I drove her around, noticing that she would always crab the right-hand side, and my arm muscles on my left-hand side were getting enormous because I was trying to keep her in. Um, so I was putting a lot more dot four in the car than petrol. And the amp-up because the passenger door would swing open and I wouldn't necessarily stop at the beginning of a roundabout. So there's all kind of things going on with this car. First of all, she wasn't straight, she was burnt, she wasn't really red, and she didn't stop. So, but I still loved her, and I still love her. Then I went up to Scotland to do some work on distilleries, and I worked at the Kilcoma Distillery, which is where... Morris Wilkes' um, grandson lives and has a home distillery. Morris Wilkes was the owner of one Land Rover in Anglesey. And mm-hmm. he, that was his family farm up in Isla. Anyway, they've restored all their Land Rovers and they were shiny. They were like shiny. And they stopped. You go along and they stop, which was kind of a novel experience. And um, I mean, it's an option. I don't know if, you, if, you, if that's how you want to live your life with your vehicle actually stopping when you wanted it's it an to. Option. It's one of those like, optional extras. Um, also, yeah. they it rained up there and they had this thing called a windscreen wiper. Heard of them. Heard so of that them. was interesting. And a heater. And I thought, wow, because I had a heater which worked really well, but only on the left foot. So uh, there was all sorts of things. So I decided I was, I and mean, then I went to Fenend where Land Rover were doing their experience. And I drove a really shiny uh, Philip Bashel's Series 1 from Dunsfold. And I thought, oh, God, here it, it, I've got to do this. I've got to restore Big Red because she's crabby and I, I need to restore her. And also I split up from my then boyfriend. And I've got to this age of, right, I'm not having any babies. <laughs> I've got past this baby stage. I somehow missed it. So I'm going to restore a car. It'll take nine months to restore this car. And that is what's going to happen. I'm going to make a car and not a baby. So I decided to restore a car over nine months. The nine months turned into 19, which is the same gestation period of an elephant. And I finished the car um, with help from Adrian Wynn and Andrew Tilly, who's a top coat painter. I sanded and rubbed everything down and he built a top coat. Um, and I didn't do my brake pipes because I realized that I, I was frightened of not being able to stop so Adrian did brake pipes but she's um yeah she's restored and did her in my garage 500 hours and now she's mid-gray but she's still called big red and she's my daily car and she's and her okay. heater heats everything apart well apart from your hands and your body but um it, <laughs> yeah, it heats most things and also, um, she stops. She stops at roundabouts and things. And the passenger door doesn't fly open, which is like amazing. And 
And how's the crabbing? No, I've got a new chassis. Yeah, chassis. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's two and a half inches long on the right hand side from the left. That chassis. Wow. Um, no wonder. Um, so yeah, she's um, she's gorgeous, and she's been in. She's... So so is this what you're going to do for the future? Then you're just going to go around the countryside, find these aged Land Rovers, grab them while hopefully the person doesn't realise how much they're worth, fix them up because you've got all the skills now. And uh, flog them on. Yeah, why not? I'm never going to sell Big Red because that's my child. Well, yeah. The, the, why? Why would you? You've gone through so much oh, together. We've we've gone through. Yeah, she's. Uh, we have gone. Do you know what? some of it you could possibly repeat for without fear of being arrested? <laughs> <laughs> we have. We have been through so much together. I honestly, I, I've got so many more crow's feet from driving her because. I smile. I can't stop laughing and smiling when I drive her. I just, she's just everything to me. Everything. And the dashboard is curlier than my hair. I've got really curly hair. Dashboard, all the wiring loom was just a mess. And I managed. It, it, I can't believe. I, um, when I drive her, I'm completely flabbergasted. <laughs> I did such a thing. <laughs> I can't believe that. When I got to the bulkhead and I nearly wanted to die. The bulkhead was completely lying there with the steering wheel on and the wires coming out and then nothing else attached to the car. I looked at it and thought, why the hell have I done this? (laughs) Wiring does seem to be quite a scary bit of any car restoration thing. (sighs) Unless, Unless you strip absolutely everything out Start fresh, and then it just sounds like it's just gonna take you forever. That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Hence, nineteen months. <laughs> yeah, and um. I... So this was this was a nut and bolt from the ground up restoration. Yeah, completely nut and bolt. Um, there was there's three levels of how you could restore a car. Make it quick. Make it mixer, bitzer. Just drive it and doesn't you know shabby. Restore it to as many original engineered manufactured parts as possible. But because you're not going to sell it on, there's some things you can put in. Like I've got a USB point in her. So I can charge my telephone and my cameras. Mm-hmm. She's got a Series 3 chassis because the the, um, the the bolt, the bar underneath the gearbox, I can take out. So I can take the gearbox out without having to take the engine out because I'm not very strong. So I can't take yeah. an engine out and a gearbox out every single time I've got a broken gearbox, which is going to happen a lot in fly. Um, so I've, I've, so I've, I've already done one gearbox restoration already, which, which was over Christmas. We had we had a deer hanging up over the middle of the table. Sorry, vegetarians. We had a deer hanging up over the table, and then along the table, my side was the gearbox in in in, in a line with masking stripped down with writing on the masking tape with every single um basket and bearing and ring and on the other side of the kitchen table was an mg me midget race engine and that was christmas dinner <laughs> we had dinner on our laps because there was no kitchen table and the dishwasher the dishwasher was full of carburettors and parts <laughs> we broke the dishwasher anyway but um the um so yeah, so the, the the bar underneath the gearbox can come out, so I can take the the gearbox out by myself. So I decided okay. that was really important. Otherwise, 
I'd have to be paying money all the time for someone to help me do this. Um, she's also got um, a Solex carburetor, not a Weber. No, she's got a Zenith, not a Solex. I swapped the Zenith, the Solex out because I thought it was nicer, more powerful, because now she can go at 55 miles an hour and it's really down a hill. It's really fast. So that's, that's really good. Um, so, and then the, the other one is a nut and bolt restoration where it's just concourse and you're going to sell it on for a million thousand pounds. But I'm, I'm not going to sell mine on. So she's, she's mine. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking for others to restore because now I know how to do it and I've got a garage. Ah, see so you're gloating now. You have a garage. It's just showing off. I rent it. I rent it. I could easily get, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, she's been in magazines. Yeah, she's been a centrefold. Yeah, she's. How how quickly they grow oh, up. Oh, she's gonna. She better not. She better not shed her wings and go off somewhere without me knowing. A couple of last questions before we go into the quickfire uh, ones. What are your plans professionally for the future? Um, well, immediately I'm editing a radio play, which I've taken a whole year to write. And that's because mm-hmm. things don't take the same amount of time that you think they're going to take. Um, and also... Dublin and Adenor. Dublin and Adenor. <laughs> and then also the people say, oh, do it No, do it again. No, do it again. So I nearly finished that. And I can't wait to get that play out because I want everyone to know about this amazing woman from the 20s. Um, I'm doing some commentating at the VSCC at Prescott. I do that at lunch. I do that at lunch times, and I talk about historic women racing drivers because I've researched that. I was going to make a book about historic women racing drivers, and I'd still like to, but things come and go. Um, so I've got a lot of information about women racing drivers from the 20s. So I'm doing that. I'm also doing some cruise ship after dinner talks at the captain's table about historic women racing drivers. Mm-hmm. That'll be pretty funny um i'm kind of building a house for a bit so that's going to be a bit i'm going to have to sort of do that professionally as well in the sense of photograph it document it and um try and make my way out you know get some get some exposure out of that of some sort Mm -hmm. um but continue i want to go to um america and australia i want to do the bathurst 12 hours yeah really would like to go to that that needs to be with another project of some sort and i'd like to do laguna sega racing in um mm-hmm. america and i'd like to do a road trip up the pacific highway on a motorbike okay. so that's something but professionally because I've got these little projects, building a house, finishing the play, I've got to do a lot more corporate work, commissioned work, where whoever wants me for, for a couple of years, I've got to now sort of stop doing personal work and just do a lot more, maybe some advertising work or corporate work. And I used to do a lot of theatre stills photography and, and film. I'm going to try and go back into doing that for a couple of years. Or I build the house, otherwise, um, I'm not going to get it built. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got something's got to pay these bills. Something has to pay the bills, and that's what the freelance photography is all about. You can't do personal projects the whole time, which do get paid. You know, you do get paid in the end. You make a book, 
get sold, you do editorials, they get sold. Um, they're just not, you have to supplement that with proper corporate, corporate jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm going to, I'm going to push us on to the quick fire questions because I realize I'm taking up so much of your evening. Uh, but I will start with the one I normally do, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Well, I suppose it's definitely the W series and the mm-hmm. Formula E series. I think that without these Without the Formula E series, we won't get the new um, influx of cars on our streets because we need to test them somewhere. Um, I, yeah. I just only hope that the infrastructure can catch up with the technology that's already happened with the racing. I mean, we've got more charging points than we do petrol stations in this country now. Do we? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. I just don't know if that's been... I just don't know if, if there are an awful lot of myths and say mid noughties thoughts being regurgitated to people and the press are doing this, some of them, where they don't understand how far it's progressed i need to open my eyes again with that i think when you're working on different projects you kind of close your eyes to something and, and the politics as well whatever happening in the world we, we get bombarded with that so I'll, i will now have a look again at our infrastructure um i know mm. on the street that i live my car is in front of my house and i can't mm. have a plug um currently but in my new house i will driveway. therefore i will have a plug yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're beginning to reel them out in London where they're going to connect up to street lamps. So that's going to be the street. It's going to be a street lamp and charging point, things like that. I mean, with, More needs I to mean, be done. With, More. Ne- it certainly needs to be done. But it, it is, I mean, Alan and I, who's the chap I do the um, motoring podcast with, we drove around Britain in six days in an electric car to see what it was like. And that was two septembers ago and it's moved on so far since good, then good i mean i think with electric bikes there's a possibility that you can take the battery out dump it in a charging point the same battery and put it in another bike i mean that yeah. would be great wouldn't it like everyone has the same battery yeah. and you just take the battery yeah, yeah. out and put it in and you just mm. buy you just rent batteries like you rent gas you know uh when you go to the campsite you you you, you yeah. buy the container and then you just swap it over and, and you get another gas cylinder. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, then what currently worries you about the motoring world? Yeah, it's that infrastructure and the fact that the W Series has to dissipate after a couple of years. It has to, otherwise it will have ruined suffragettes. <laughs> Suffragists. <laughs> and everything that we stood for. Everything that we stood for. Damn it. <laughs> Okay, I think I know the answer to this next one, but I let's see if I if I do. But what's been your favourite car to drive, and why is that? The Jaguar D-Type. Oh, okay, that's not what I was expecting. The Jaguar D-Type. Um, Where did you drive that? I drove that round. Uh, I've driven it a few times, and Goodwood, ah, and okay. and I, I, I've got no words. <laughs> I, I cannot explain what that was like to drive apart from 
visceral. It's like a rocket. It made me think, oh my God, the world is, I'm only tickling the world. I'm tickling it with what I do. That car, the Jaguar D-Type. And then I had Norman Jewest beside me on one of the journeys and he was the crash test dummy for it. 143 miles an hour. I only did 110 miles an hour, only. Just just the 110. Um, but yeah, the Jaguar D-Type has been my best car I've ever driven, ever. And of course, Big Red is my favourite car to drive because she's my baby. But the best car, I think, in terms of just your whole body, it, it must be what it's like to go down um, a, a quest a ski run on a toboggan. It must be. I mean, I, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that. But the D-Type was just like that. I just was so... I, I couldn't... I think I was speechless... And um, it reminded me of going up in a tiger moth plane and doing somersaults. And it's that experience that you just can't, makes you tingle when you, like, I, like makes you tingle when you're thinking about it. This big red just gives me crow's feet every single bleeding day. <laughs> okay, now what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Crazy Ypsilon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, was, you probably don't need to it's explain just falling that. apart. Everything I touched, it just fell apart. And the, the, I was on a press trip, and I think it was, uh, yeah, it was whoever I was with just said, "Stop pulling it apart, Jane." But they're just coming off of my hand. I didn't make them anymore. It was just, it was the worst car, and I didn't feel safe. I don't, I don't think my chassis was. I think I, I felt like I was driving a Flintstones car. <laughs> okay, then, what car would you like to own next? I'm always going to keep Big Red, okay? So she's mm-hmm. always going to be in my life. I would like to own a Porsche. Any particular? Probably a 912 or a okay. 11T, maybe. 912, probably. Okay, that seems uh, perfectly reasonable. Lovely beer. Lovely beer. <laughs> What's your favourite road to drive on? Um, oh, yeah. So the Colturini in France, which is like someone's scribbled on your sat-nav, mm-hmm. backs and forwards, up and down. In the UK, I would say the A86, uh, which is gorgeous uh, in Scotland, goes around Cairngorms, I think. Mm-hmm. And the Kirkstone Pass in Yorkshire towards Whitby Bay, okay. gorgeous road. Yeah, those two roads, I think, those three roads. Okay, what's the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Oh. Pretend exhaust valve noises. (laughs) You know, when you push a button and the exhaust gets noisier. I'm not a boy. I don't have one of them things that I need to show off with. (laughs) Okay. Designed by a man for a man. Uh, <laughs> who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Um, wow. I'm really into historic crafts and history and making sure we don't forget the history of some important things. And this chap who runs a Lucas light collection. He's not a museum. He's a private collector. He's in the Midlands, 
And mm-hmm. he has every single light that Lucas made since they started. And he's got these enormous lights that Rolls-Royce put on. And Rolls-Royce were the first people to do dipped headlights because of Lucas. And because of, Lu- because okay. of Lucas, the speed limit phase. You know, you know, we do the London to Brighton run on November the fourth and fifth every year. It's to celebrate yeah. the speed limit raising. That was to do with the combustion engine getting better, in conjunction with lighting. You could see what was in front of you better. Lucas lights were able to put a light in the car and not have a man standing in front with the red flag walking in front of the car. The speed limit raised from four miles an hour to fourteen miles an hour because of Lucas lights. And he can tell you all about that. And it just continues, continues. And now it's talking about LED lights and um, intuitive lights and on-screen vision, forward vision, which is mm-hmm. started in the aerodynamics industry. Um, and then Lucas took it on. They're a different company now. They're not called Lucas anymore. But he's got every single lamp and can tell you all about it. Now, this could seem to be rather a, a geeky a geeky conversation with this man because he will go on but if you constructed and directed his conversation you and the rest the rest of the world would find out so much about the modern day car how we get to drive fast because of the light and okay. that Excellent. leaves I, me I, with I and, I, and I love it because photography is light you know, yeah. that's my world. The light is always right. So I, I, I like the Lucas Light story. Okay, well, just before I say thank you so much, uh, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do, get in touch, find out when you're doing any more of these um, photography courses and workshops, that sort of thing? So my website is www.photofeature.co.uk. My Twitter mm-hmm. is at photofeature. And I do have an Instagram that we've been talking about. It's photo dot feature. I've got a dot in the middle because I can't find my password for the, the actual photo feature that I set up <laughs> years ago. Um, anyway, it's photo dot feature. But um, photofeature.co.uk. And if you go to shop, you'll find my signed books, which I've made, and all my yeah. workshops and personal tuition. And if you have a company that wants your team to be trained in basics of photography, just the basics, one day to learn how to bend your knees properly and how to look look <laughs> at the light and take a photograph, looking at the beauty of the subject you're photographing. I can do that as well. I'm doing these one-day corporate teaching training days, and I come to your company and teach a team of people just to teach you how to put photographs on your own company website. I will make sure that there are links in the show notes so people can click directly and go straight through to that. Thank you. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much for chatting with me. I've had an absolute blast. Uh, I've learned a lot. I now know to bend my knees, <laughs> amongst other things. And and it's just been it's just been great chatting to you and finding out sort of your approach to photography and things I've, i find it fascinating and uh, i love the the work that you do that you put out there for us to see as well thank you very much thanks once again to lara for coming on review and chatting with me i hope you found our conversation as fascinating as i did and if you want to suggest someone i should ask to come on this show please do get in touch if you use the hashtag review pod we'll be guaranteed to see it here in merchant podcast towers to get in touch with me directly search for crack windscreen on twitter 
And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. If you think what we do here on Rearview and the Motoring Podcast is worth a pound, please do go and support us in our efforts by going to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support and clicking the Patreon button. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I think that the guests who come on here have some fantastic stories and I want as many people as possible to hear them. So until next time, that was Laura Platman. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.